Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 535 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. So what have you been up to this week? I've had a fairly busy week out and about with meetings, um, a friend's birthday harbour cruise, which was lovely, a trip to the theatre to see a play. I'm not actually going to mention the name of the play because, to be honest, it wasn't great. To be fair, the performances by the actors was were absolutely wonderful and quite frankly, they were world-class, you know, because we have some incredible acting talent in this country. But the play itself, the story, the structure, the subject, well, you know, not so amazing is the most diplomatic way I can put it. Oh, I did also manage to catch the movie Tetris on Apple Plus, and it stars Taryn Edgerton, who uh, you may remember played Elton John in Rocketman, and also starred in the true crime, well, dramatization of a true crime, uh, Blackbird. If you're not familiar with the movie Tetris, it's not like the Lego movie, it's actually the true story of an American video game salesman who discovered Tetris back in 1988. Yes, the video game Tetris, all the the, little blocks that fall down. And it's about the negotiations and corruption and danger, yes, believe it or not, danger, that he experienced when negotiating its, its use, like negotiating the rights to use Tetris from, would you believe it, the Russian government. Of course, after watching the movie, I then felt compelled to dig out. I had to open all my cupboards and find my own game of Tetris because, yes, I I have my own Tetris. And, I mean, I couldn't believe the battery still worked. And, of course, then I spent way too long nostalgically playing the game. But speaking of games, actually... I have been intrigued that there are so many movies out at the moment based on games. I mean, it's nothing new, of course. We've had Tomb Raider and Clue and Resident Evil and Battleship and, oh my goodness, you know, the Lego movies, right? But more recently, we've got Super Mario Brothers and Dungeons and Dragons and, and Tetris, of course. Now, I admit I, unlike Tetris, which I have played lots of times, I've never played Dungeons and Dragons myself, but friends of mine are very keen on it, and I gather that it's kind of storytelling as a group. And it reminds me of family games we used to play when you'd write one sentence and then pass it on to the next person, and they'd write the next sentence, and, you know, you'd try to write a story that way. So games, interestingly enough, are actually very powerful prompts for storytelling because following rules can often free up our imagination in new ways. And that's why our Furious Fiction Challenge is so popular because like when you're kind of being constrained to follow the criteria of the month can lead writers to create new and interesting stories that they never would have otherwise imagined. So my writing tip, or well, my writing challenge maybe, or writing exercise perhaps, is to try writing a story based on a game you love and maybe for an extra challenge, not a video game. So what would a game about um, or that involves Scrabble or Monopoly look like or Snakes and Ladders or Bridge or Blackjack or even Wordle, right? 
make your characters obliged to follow the rules of the game as part of the story and hey, see where it takes you. Now, of course, if you're not familiar with Furious Fiction, which I just referred to, it happens on the first Friday of every month and it's a writing challenge where you have 55 hours to write 500 words. If you're interested, check out furiousfiction.com.au and it's totally free to enter, of course. Oh, I wanted to also highlight to you a special event that I have for you this week. This is another one of our fantastic Focus On series. This is Focus On Pace, and it's on this week. It's a live Zoom seminar, and it's on this week on Thursday, the 27th of April, from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Sydney, Melbourne time. And this is awesome. This is going to help you figure out whether your story is too slow or too fast. You know, even if you have a great uh, plot and some fantastic characters, pace is really important because the pace of your story is going to determine whether your reader is going to stick with it. So if you're not sure what pace is, obviously come and find out, come and discover. We'll be talking about what it is, how it needs to change over the course of your story, how to control your pace within scenes and over the whole story. And also, depending on the genre that you're writing, well, you know, what pace is required for that particular genre, because every genre and subgenre has its own requirements in terms of pace. So, Please come and join us. Um, it's a fantastic event. Just uh, visit writercenter.com.au slash pace and you'll find all of the details on this fantastic live Zoom seminar on Thursday, 27th April. See you there. I want to move on to the competition I have for you this week. I have three copies of Going Zero by Anthony McCartan to give away. Oscar-nominated screenwriter Anthony McCartan is back with his latest novel, Going Zero, which is perfect for fans of fast-paced, high-stakes stories and will have you keep turning the pages to the very end. I have three copies to give away. Here's the blurb. Two hours to vanish. Ten people have been carefully selected to beta test a groundbreaking piece of spyware. Pioneered by tech wunderkind Cy Baxter, Fusion can track anyone wherever they are on Earth, but does it work? One chance to escape. Each participant is given two hours to go zero, to go off-grid and disappear, and then 30 days to elude the highly sophisticated capture teams sent to find them. Any zero that beats Fusion will receive $3 million in cash. If Psy's system prevails, he wins a $90 billion contract with the CIA to develop Fusion and revolutionise surveillance forever. Zero alternatives. For contestant Caitlin Day, the stakes are far higher than money and her reasons for entering the test more personal than Cy could have ever imagined. Caitlin needs to win to get what she wants and Cy will stop at nothing to realise his ambitions. They have no choice but to finish the game and when the timer hits zero, there will only be one winner. Okay, well... I have three copies to give away. Just go to writercenter.com.au slash win and follow the instructions to enter. Entries close on the 1st of May. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. Alrighty, well, I want to give a big shout out to Lappies 
from Australia who kindly left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. The heading is, This Podcast Makes Writing a Community. And I love that. So Lappies from Australia says, This weekly podcast is my me time and it keeps me sane. I love word of the week. (laughs) Valerie has such humor and warmth in the way she speaks as if she's just having a conversation with you as you go about your day listening. The authors featured come from such varied backgrounds and their work covers everything you'd find in your beloved bookstore. I love listening to each author's process because you always get a tiny nugget of gold you weren't expecting and get to try that with your own writing. Oh my goodness, thank you so much, Lappies from Australia. I really, really appreciate it. And of course, if anyone else has 30 seconds to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, I would be very grateful because it helps us in the rankings and helps other people discover us and helps build this community, which is all for you. But I love the fact also that Lappies loves the word of the week because now... Are you ready for the word of the week? (laughs) Okay, the word of the week this week is lycanthropy. Lycanthropy, that's L-Y-C-A-N, lycanthropy, T-H-R-O-P-Y, lycanthropy. Okay, if you've read Harry Potter or supernatural fiction, you might already have an idea of what this means. So lycanthropy is a kind of insanity in which the patient imagines that he or she is a wolf or other wild beast. Now, I did look into whether clinical lycanthropy was particularly widespread, and it is not. But there are a number of interesting potential cases from history, including King Nebuchadnezzar in the Bible and Odysseus's crew in Homer's Odyssey. There you go. Lycanthropy. Try using that in a sentence this week. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Now, let's listen to our writer in residence this week. Today, I'm talking to Tony Jordan, who has worked as a molecular biologist, a quality control chemist, a tab operator, a TAB operator, and a door-to-door aluminium siding salesperson. But she's also author of seven novels, including her latest, Prettier If She Smiled More. Her first novel was the international bestseller edition, which was long listed for the Miles Franklin Award. And her last one was the ridiculously popular Dinner with the Schnabels. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tony. It's a pleasure, Valerie. Thank you. Congratulations on your latest novel. Oh, my God. Prettier if she smiled more. For listeners who don't have a copy of it themselves and they absolutely need to go get it, can you tell us what it's about? 
Well, this is the story of a woman named Kylie. She's in her early 40s and she's the kind of person who just has all her ducks in a row. She just she has her job where she wants it and she's she has her boyfriend where she wants him and she organizes her family. Um, she's the eldest sibling. She's one of these women who just do everything, do it right, get it done. Um, but then she starts to have a very bad week where things kind of start um, spiraling out of control for her. Um, the the pharmacy where she works is sold, um, which undermines her position and her boyfriend. Something is going on there. And it just as the week progresses, her very carefully organised life kind of um, starts to behave um, outside of her control and um, the, I, I guess the story is about watching her um, trying to keep everything uh, where she wants it and then um, maybe making some big decisions about her future. Now, we all know a Kylie or somebody who has elements of Kylie. Where did this Kylie come from in your brain? Why did you want to write about Kylie? Well, she was a, a minor character in my previous book to this, which was called Dinner with the Schnabels. And I love writing about families. I, I find families endlessly fascinating. Um, I like the fact that regardless of who we grow up to be, so much of our initial view of the world and our values and our social mores come from those people we grow up with. Um, I'm fascinated with the way we might love our family members but not necessarily like them. <laughs> and um, just generally um, the way that, Within a family, you're a slightly different uh, sort of version of yourself with every different member of that family. And the way childhood patterns repeat themselves into adulthood, I find the whole thing very interesting. So Kylie was a minor character in my previous book, but I thought that she um, looks very normal on the outside. But I have this philosophy that no one is normal. <laughs> And if you can just scratch beneath the surface of everyone, everyone is kind of weird. Um, and so I really wanted to discover what made her tick and what was under that very tightly wound kind of surface of hers. When you wrote the first book, well, when you wrote Dinner with the Schnabels, um, did you know at that point that Kylie was going to get her own story? I suspected it. Really? Um, yeah, because I, I've always been a big admirer of those you know, those Marion Keys books about the five Walsh sisters, of which I think my favourite was Rachel's Holiday. But they're all, you get to see um, the different sisters. You meet them in their own stories, of course, but you also see them through the other sisters' stories. And it was always, I thought, how elegantly she had constructed these characters where you think you know one person from seeing inside her head. But when you see what her family members think of her, it seems like a completely different person altogether from the one that you you met. Um, and I thought an Australian version of that would be cool, where we have a number of siblings kind of um, popping up and then seeing the parts they play in other people's stories. Now, I'm going to come back to this novel and ask you a whole bunch of questions about your writing process, but I'd just like to give people a little bit of context because before becoming a novelist, you had another career and you've done a whole bunch of quite different things <laughs> from being a molecular biologist to a TAB operator 
to a door-to-door aluminium siding salesperson. So can you just take us back to give us a very brief potted career history (laughs) until you got to the point where you went, oh, you know what, I want to write some best-selling novels? (laughs) Well, um, I was always a a sciencey kid. And I guess that um, that comes from growing up in a in a pretty working class kind of down to earth family where we didn't have you know uh, you know literary novels around the house and um, the TAB agency was my mum's so uh, and dad was uh, a greyhound trainer um, so um, I kind of uh, grew up in that kind of family and they were terrific that they had this odd kid who <laughs> read novels in the bedroom. Um, um, but I think it, it's easier to understand the idea of going to university if it's a job that's a, an understandable job. And I tangible. just, yeah, tangible job. And I loved science and I love understanding how things work. I loved understanding how the body works. Um, so I did a Bachelor of Science and I worked for a number of years as a research molecular biologist at the University of Queensland in protein chemistry really there and then for a couple of biotech companies and then I drifted out of that into um, working for some pharmaceutical companies and then eventually washed up um, doing reg affairs so writing drug dossiers for the TGA so this is is when I used to say this you know uh, writing drug dossiers for the TGA no one knew what that meant but now everyone knows what that means Um, and I kind of thought it was actually my husband's suggestion. He said, if you go and do a TAFE course in professional writing, you can maybe start up your own business as a technical writer and um, like a consultancy writing for different companies uh, on contract. And then I thought that was a fantastic idea. And then um, when I enrolled in this TAFE course in writing, um, one of the subjects was fiction and I ticked the box and the first, it was the, I'd never done anything creative in my life before. I would have said I didn't have a creative bone in my body, but as soon as I started writing fiction, I just, I was quite obsessed with it. And my first novel edition was a, an assignment from the first year of that course. That's incredible. So when you finished that course, though, did you then, obviously that ignited your uh, interest in fiction, but did you then get also the skills to go and become a technical writer (laughs) in pharma? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I started started that kind of little consultancy that I'd planned to. And because this is the joy of working for yourself, um, I could structure my week to work three 12-hour days um, and then I had two days left to write the novel because I wanted to finish uh, edition. Um, wow. So, so that was a purposeful decision. I'm going to just work these three full on 12-hour yep. days so that I yep. have time. Did you do yep. 12 hours a day of novel writing for two days? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, but the thing is that I'm not very good at multitasking. I really admire these people who can sit down and, you know, do an hour or do half an hour or do 10 minutes. I, it seems to take my brain a long time to get into gear and and really appreciate where the story is coming from. So I know it's better for me if I can have, you know, just one or two full days a week than, than the, the little bits of time. I really admire those people who can do that, though. Mm. So back, that was a while ago, and you decided you wanted to finish 
that novel. But obviously at that point while you were writing it, you didn't know it was going to get published. You didn't no. know it was going to be published. You never know. You never know. And it's sensation. It, <laughs> it seems such a long shot, you know, because I didn't, other than the the teachers I had in, in the course, I'd never met any other writers. Um, I didn't know anyone who was published. It was. It seemed impossible to even think about it. What was it that captured your imagination so much about writing fiction? Because that's committed to then structure your yeah. life so you can finish that novel. The only way I can really explain it is um, uh, it was entirely the process I fell in love with, which is, which is what your question is saying. You know, how can you remain committed to something when the chances of publication are so low? Um, but I genuinely felt like I was eight years old playing Barbies, except in my head. And, you know, I, I was a great Barbie player from, from childhood, from very small to probably way too old, where I had these enormous constructed worlds for my Barbies and I had the dream house and I had the, you know, furniture set up on the side of the bed that, you know, no one was allowed to touch. And, and every afternoon when I got home from school, I would, this is me <laughs> making, like holding my Barbies and moving them around. They had conversations and they had fights and they did this and did that. So I had this enormous Barbie kind of imaginary world going on that I would race home from school to, to re, to reignite and, and sit there for an hour by myself playing Barbies. And it, it was exactly like that. Like I just, truly felt like I was entering this childlike childhood world of make-believe every day and it was just a joy. Was that a shock to you? Had you felt that that excitement before for other things that you had done in not in really. Your I mean I, I liked my work well enough. It's not that I was, you know, terribly unfulfilled. Um it was it was just a, a realization of, of how much fun and engagement um that there was left in my brain but other things did fall fall down I was also one of these people then who used to plan out what I was going to cook and I was very interested in cooking and I was excited to make things at the end of the day now not at all like now like can I just like I'll have eggs on toast or get a pizza but I think part of that the interest that I had in constructing those meals was part of this longing for engagement in some kind of creative process that was coming out in my life in other ways. Wow. Okay. So how lucky that you ticked that box. And obviously then addition went on to, you know, get on the awards list and become <laughs> this crazy success. And you've written several novels since. It was At so lucky, point. Valerie. I highly recommend for all your students. <laughs> if, try and be lucky if you can. It makes things much easier. Try and be lucky. I love it. <laughs> but the, the, the reality is, though, it's not just about luck. You actually finish the novel because a yeah. lot of people don't do that. Um, they have a novel and it stays in their head. But at what point then did you think, I don't think I need to do the consultancy anymore and I'm going to do this full time? That was well into it. I was really, I was partway through my second book before I kind of gave all that up. Um, and yeah, that's really, not that far into it, <laughs> my second book. I mean. It seemed a long time, but um, it, it was um, It's the was the kind of field that you have to really keep up to date with legislative, legislative changes and technical changes. So it's it's a hard thing to do on the side. Um 
so I was lucky that um, addition, especially in Germany, Germany was really the country that uh, it took off enormously and um, I had a, some income coming in so I thought I could give it a try. Wow. Okay. So you decide I'm going to do this full time. I'm going to. Oh, okay. Maybe I should just say I was also teaching a little bit. By the time I was working on my second book, um, I started to get offers to teach. So I, I did a couple of, um, I taught some courses at RMIT University here in Melbourne and uh, did some workshops for Writers of Victoria and things like that. So I was, I was generating some income that way. So let's talk about your writing process then. I mean, let's take this novel, Prettier If She Smiled More. Can you give us a just a vague timeline of when you thought, okay, it's time for, you know, starting to write my next novel. Yeah. Um, I have this idea. What kind of time period do you think about it, let it gestate, and then yeah. start full-on writing the manuscript and how long does that draft take or a draft that you're kind of happy with it's finished this is a very instructive question for me as well because this was very much an outlier compared with all the rest of my books this was by far the hardest thing I've ever written took more drafts than anything else even even more than my first book I found it really extraordinarily difficult why (laughs) well I've got a couple of theories um, my husband has a theory, and his theory is that Kylie is perhaps a little bit too close to home, and I was <laughs> I was having trouble making some distance between the character and myself, which is, you know, I'm not going to disagree. It could well be, you know, he's got a point. Um, but also uh, I started this book in um, March, 1st of April, 21, and at that same time, I was also editing Dinner with the Schnabels. So I think part of the difficulty also was, I again, I found the voice, the voice of those two novels were leaking into each other. So I found it a very, the, the first draft when I handed it in, I thought was poor, possibly the poorest first draft I'd ever handed in. And I had to work really hard in editing. My poor editor, Emma, oh my God, she was amazing. Um, but it, it was a, it was, so I wrote it in 21, starting at April. I submitted it early 22. And that editing period of last year, I worked just incredibly hard, harder than I've worked on any other book. Wow. Okay. So a couple of things there. Was it because did the, did you feel, apart from what you felt, did the editor come back to you with more edits than, or more suggestions than your, the previous novel? Um, she was con- yes she was conscious that they're very nice people right and they're never going to say this is actually rubbish tony <laughs> what is this um so she certainly didn't say anything like that and nothing that that shook my confidence um but she kind of thought that the book was could have been so much better than the book that i handed in and i could only agree with her i was disappointed with in it when it when i handed it in what sort okay, firstly, let me just tell listeners, I think the book is seamless. I think it has an extremely strong voice and and a very unique voice because Kylie is 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 sort of a little bit different and yet you know her. You know, like I said, you kind of know a Kylie or someone with Kylie-like <laughs> aspects. I actually one of my best friends is Kylie and she lives in Melbourne and she is, she has many of these aspects. I'm like, did you write about her? <laughs> anyway. 
So what then was what was it that you had to work so hard on? Was it the voice or it's were the voice? It, when I write a draft, when I write a manuscript, it's almost entirely voice led. I do no planning beforehand. I just really have a lot of faith in my unconscious and that it knows what it's doing. And um, and yes, some books I have to work harder in editing than others, but some books I don't have to work hard in editing at all. Um, but the voice was confused and messy and I think part of that is because the voice that I'm aiming for in both this book and the previous book, I'm aiming for a unreliable close third person, which is not really a very common kind of point of view that you might find. You get you do get unreliable first persons, but but most third persons are a little bit more um, omnis- omniscient and trustworthy than my my this close third person that I've got, and I also try and um, move it in in uh, what you would know that we call sometimes free indirect style. So that first that third person voice sometimes flows further away from the protagonist and sometimes flows closer, and I try and make that movement of the voice away and close and away and close to be as seamless as I can so that there's a fluidity to it. Um, So even though hopefully it reads easily, technically it's a complicated voice and um, it it wasn't working, I think, because I was editing another voice of that same type but for a different character at the same time as coming up with this one from scratch. And as as remarked, I'm somewhat of a Kylie myself. So sometimes I would pop things in that, that seemed right to me. And, um, and for example, it, this is a small and inconsequential example, but just to give you an idea, in in the early draft, this Kylie that you've read about in this book is also an expert on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? She knows all the Marvel movies. And Emma, my editor, said, does she really? Is she re- this this character as you've constructed it? Does she really know all the Marvel movies? Of course she didn't, but I do. So there's this <laughs> there was this bleed between us, um, and of course Emma was completely right. There's no way that Kylie in the book uh, understands those movies. They all had to come out, and and there was a number of points where I. You know, it was like a question mark. Is that her? Is that you? What is going on here? So that had to all be fixed. Oh, my God. Do you really <laughs> know everything about the Marvel Cinematic Universe? I do. I do. And I also have a a, a PowerPoint presentation that I've <laughs> that I have for people who are in, entering into it for the first time to catch them up, you know, for Oh, my God, that's and- hilarious. <laughs> All right, so I am so intrigued by... This is the point. Kylie, the character, does not and should not. So there was these uncomfortable moments of bleed between the two of us. Oh, my God, that's too funny. Now, I'm I'm intrigued by you say you really trust your intuition and you start with... um, just this idea and and this, this voice kind of thing. How much of the story did you know was going to happen before you put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard? Almost nothing. In this really? case, almost nothing. Yeah, pretty much nothing. So yeah. what? So okay, <laughs> talk me through that. You start. You think I, I'm going to. I've set aside my blocks of time, and yep. I've got this idea. What actually happens? Do you just 
what actually happens? Yeah, I, I, I honestly, I know it sounds really strange. Um, I just sit down. My word counts that I, uh, my word count targets are low in the beginning. First couple of weeks, they're 200 or 300 something words a day, like pretty low. I, and I work on that first scene. So I, I all, almost always start with what the first scene is. And I, I just work my way through that. And at the end of that, somehow I think about then, okay, what is the next scene? And then I do the next scene. And then I think about what is the next scene? <laughs> You're looking very worried. <laughs> well, because I, even, I, though, even though I know that a lot of authors don't necessarily plot, that's completely normal, I don't think I've quite heard somebody who literally has no idea to that extent. Yeah. Um, so is there a day, have you, you been in situations where you've gone to the next scene, you've gone to the next scene and so on, and then you've just kind of realised it's not going anywhere and i got to chuck out a whole heap? Rarely. So I've got seven published novels and I have two well, two that I couldn't make work. By the time I got, you know, to the end or close to the end, I looked back and went, well, this is enormous rubbish and a complete waste of time. Um, but I'm prepared to to take the risk that, you know, like some like if you make a cake, I don't make cakes, but I imagine sometimes you put it in the oven and it comes out and you go, Ugh, that's really not what I intended. I, I'm prepared to take the risk that sometimes they won't turn out for the, the joy and the thrill I get from the discovery of process on the way. Okay, but here's the thing. If I made a cake and it didn't turn out, I'd eat it anyway. So for, <laughs> for your two novels that you went, that really doesn't work, did you chuck them or did you uh, did you think, I can I can revise, I can I, make I them? I have. Um, it, this is also a question that's very dear to my heart because I'm incredibly lazy and I don't mm. like to waste anything. So almost both of those novels I have cannibalised parts I've, I've taken a complete short story from one of them, um, which is appearing in a collection at the end of the year. Um, I've taken assorted paragraphs from others, like I've bits that I like. I've I've got I scroll through and I go, oh, that's a really good paragraph. I can squeeze that somewhere else. So they're riddled with holes now because I've recycled, you know, large chunks of them and stuck them in other things. When you're writing about family dynamics, um, and this is not just about family dynamics, there's other characters that are just, you know, really interesting and have interesting interactions and interesting ways of thinking themselves, um, you kind of need to be a good observer of human behaviour. So what do you do on a conscious level to, you know, notice things and, and and you know, come up with, great lines like that tea is so pale it could be the cast of neighbors <laughs> Gloria. um actually <laughs> noticing things is something that i think is vital for a fiction writer and when i used to teach i used to set uh little tasks for my students tell me what you saw on the way here today tell me something you saw and just try to get them into that mode of notice noticing and I'm also an enormous fan of eavesdropping on the tram. I catch the tram everywhere. And you wouldn't believe the things people say, especially into their mobile phones, in public. Like some of the best lines I've ever collected come from eavesdropping on trams. Then I 
pretend I'm playing on my phone and I email it to myself or I put it in notes, you know, the line that somebody said, talking about that divorce or whatever it is, like complaining about somebody. Like people are so indiscreet. It's hilarious. And I get a lot of great lines that way. You wouldn't believe. One of my favourite lines from an earlier book, not from this book, was a woman who said, um, and then they had to, the then they had the cheek to charge me excess baggage and I've only just lost five kilos. And I thought that was hilarious. Just in her head, she was so affronted that, like, she'd gone to all the trouble of losing weight and she thought that that would carry over <laughs> to wherever she was flying. They would give her, like, a credit on the baggage. Like, the, the absolute, like, how aghast she was. It was just. One of the best oh things I've ever heard. That's hilarious. So, <laughs> though, but, but you like, were you like this before, you know, eavesdropping on the tram and before think, you became a writer? I think I was a bit, but I've certainly heightened it. It's something I really understand the enormous power of. And the little, I noticed little things about people, like, like you know, the, the way they, the way they dress, something idiosyncratic, something um, unusual about their hair or something. I, I just, I'm drawn to these odd kind of little bits of people um, that sometimes I use. So you say that you start off with fairly low word counts and you're writing, you know, these single scenes or, or short scenes, or, you know, getting the story going. Yeah, yeah. Does it get to a point at some point in the story, in the manuscript, where because it has to go somewhere, right? Yeah. And yeah. at some point do you kind of know, okay, I know where it's going now. It's going there. So I can yeah. write towards a destination. Yeah, yeah. At some point it picks up its own steam and I find that to be almost always around the 30,000 word mark. Mm -hmm. um, like until I get to 30,000, I'm pushing it. I imagine myself pushing it like with a stick, <laughs> like a rake uphill. And then at about that, that word count, it develops its own momentum. And it becomes a, a thing that knows what it what it is, what shape it is. Um, uh, Dinner with the Schnabels, I had a problem at the very beginning and I knew it. Um, I don't, uh, I, I'm not sure if you've read that book, but I sent it in to my publisher and she said, I'm the, I said, sent the first chapter into my publisher. And she said, I'm very happy. I love the voice. I love the characters, but it's too slow. The beginning is too slow. And uh, I was on track then and I couldn't do anything about it, but I let that problem sit in the back of my brain. And when I got to 30,000 words, I thought, oh, now I know <laughs> what she meant and how to fix it. And I popped a little prologue on the front, which solved kind of my problem with that. And, and then that clarified what was going to happen further on down in the story. What was the hardest thing about writing this novel? Uh, this novel was just hard beginning to end, but the the hardest part was really the uh, the psychological managing my my own psychology, because normally as I as I kind of said earlier, it's a joyous experience for me. I feel like I'm playing, like it's great fun, and this this book from the beginning I wanted it to be better I wanted to do a better job for Kylie and for the Kylies of this world I wanted it to be better than it was as I was working on it and that's a bad kind of frame of mind to be in um, and you've got to really hold your nerve like sometimes novels do not want to 
if they don't conform to your timetable, they're not interested in your ego. Um, creative works are their own thing and they're not there um, to make you feel good about yourself. They're there to become something of, of themselves so they can go off into the world and do the stuff they have to do. And, and it was not cooperating with how my ego expected the process to go and how um, I thought I would feel about it because <laughs> the previous book, my last book, was easy, delightful. Um, the edit was uh, shorter and there was a, a really important part of the ending that came in the edit that was a result of really intelligent questions by my editor that that absolutely blew a light bulb open in my head. So it's not that the edit didn't improve things, but but it was, and I had such a sense of satisfaction when that en ending came together. But this book had gave me no satisfaction on the way through, and I was continually frustrated. But it, it, as I said, it's not it's not here to make me feel good about myself. It's trying to be born. It's trying to come into life itself. And um, I've just got to get over myself and and let it do what it has to do. At what point then did you know that you got it? Because you did get it. But at what Five point minutes you... before we went to print, Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> no. Thought, this is not going to work. This is absolutely, come on. Don't, you know, I, I think this is not going to work. And I think, do not think that. Do not think that. You do there must not have been something else driving that because, you know, I, yeah, it can't, it can't have been that bad. You must have known before the five minutes before five minutes before it was going to print. It, it's I think um, I think partly because the last one was so easy right. and so delightful, and this one was not easy or delightful. So I was judging the product, I guess, by the process. Yes, yes. So are you working on the next one? I haven't. I'm taking a little bit of a break <laughs> to clear my head because I don't want to risk that that bleeding voice problem again. I'm letting it just, I'm just, I'll probably start something maybe next month. Will it be related in any way or will it be completely fresh? I'm thinking about another Schnabels, um, but I, I just have to see how I feel about it. Um, that none of them are sequels, right? So you don't have to read mm, the previous one no. to read this one. Um, but they are kind of companion volumes, so different, the same characters pop up again. So I just have to see if I can find something kind of fresh, a, a fresh angle to take on that family. Okay, so is is that the level of, is that all you know at the moment, that it might have some relation to the Schnabels or do you have any kind of premise that you're toying with? You don't have to tell us what the premise is, but I'm just curious in this ideation stage, Mm -hmm. what actually you how you actually ideate <laughs> well well nick the who is kylie's younger brother and the baby of the family and the spoiled entitled baby of the family is an interesting character for me because he's the kind of bloke that really needs to be smacked around the head a little bit and i think that would be a fun book <laughs> To, we all to know a Nick to, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think cutting him down to size would be a fun project. Um, but I also have to find like it's the it's a the book is would be about the whole family. So it's not just about him. I can imagine cutting him down to size, but I have to imagine everybody else's arc into the future as well and, and you know how everybody else fits into that. So I'm I'm not quite sure yet, but 
it's tempting to want to give him a bit of a slap around the chops. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, you need to get a copy of Prettier If She Smiled More by the fabulous and talented Tony Jordan. Can you leave us with your top three tips, top three tips for writers who want to be in a position where you are one day? They want to have their novels published. Um, something I always used to say to my students is um, I suggested that they keep two books on their desk. And one is a book that they, a novel that they absolutely adore. So the book, uh, for me, that would be Zadie Smith's White Teeth. And I keep it on my desk and I think if I ever wrote something half as good as that, I would die happy. And I also keep a book on my desk, um, which I won't name to you, where I think if that piece of shit got published, then so can I. So <laughs> somewhere... Everybody is somewhere between those extremes, somewhere between this beautiful work that they aspire to and a, a work that got published that, that they think, okay, well, I can do that, gives them a bit of confidence. You're in the middle of those two. So that's probably that's my, most, tip. <laughs> that's my most important tip. You need something to look up to and something to give you confidence. And you're, you're, you're between those two extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's important. Um, the second thing is, to unhook your expectations from the product to the process. So I think um, all you have to do really is fall in love with the process. If you fall in love with writing, you will naturally want to be better at it and naturally want to read better books and naturally be happy to spend the time on it. And um, it becomes a, a kind of a meditation in your life, a creative meditation where the time that you spend making something beautiful out of your own head is add something to every aspect of your life, not just, you know, the hope that you might be able to do it professionally. It's a enriching and um, a deeply humanising experience because we are like storytelling people. We are people who want to pass things on to other people. Um, so I think thinking about the process rather than the outcome is a really valuable thing. Um, and that is two. Um, <laughs> the third one would be uh, read more Australian fiction, I guess. That's a really important <laughs> thing. Uh, you need to know um, uh, what is out there. You know, I, I uh, when when people would say, you know, I, I'm, I've just finished my uh, a manuscript and I'd like to get it published, I often say to them, what are your three favourite Australian debuts from this year? Like what else is out there? Who else is writing? What are... Who will be your colleagues, and 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 what kind of um, world of books will your would your book be entering into? Um, I, I think that's an important question as well. Brilliant. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Tony. Absolute pleasure, Valerie. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Tony. Now, before I leave you, I have a fun fact for you. This week's fun fact comes from the Journal of Creative Behaviour. Yes, really, it's an academic journal that's called the Journal of Creative Behaviour. So anyway, in a study conducted by researchers at the International Centre for Studies in Creativity, yes, it's a thing, a positive correlation was found between believe it or not, using social media and creativity. 
So the caveat is that people who are active on social media, as in their posting, are more creative than people who simply doom scroll. So this is from the study. Creative activity was found to be higher among those who use social media primarily for expressing their ideas and opinions, gleaning information on topics to discuss, and self-education and learning compared to those who use it primarily for entertainment or relaxation. Our findings indicate that social media is not necessarily a negative factor for creativity. It may even be a useful platform to support new ideas and projects. So there you go. Being active on social media is not just great for building your author brand, which you should be doing if you're going to be an author, but can even boost your creativity. All right. We've now come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram, but more importantly, join our listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Uh, also, you can feel free to connect with me via my own personal newsletter at ValerieKoo.com. But thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast. Or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news, where you'll find writing resources giveaways, competitions, and much more.